Turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to finish up the book of Jonah this morning, and um, I hope you guys have been enjoying it. And um, I, I, who here likes happy endings? Like when you watch a movie, it's Hallmark season, right? Who watches the Hallmark movies? I remember it was a couple of years ago, I think Hallmark released their app, and they said, if you subscribe to this 5 or $10 a month, you will get Christmas movies all year long. My wife was like, we're going to subscribe. Do they have an annual subscription button? Because she loves the Hallmark movies. And you know the staple of Hallmark movies, right? It's always a happy ending. It's always a happy ending. And um, you, you have you know, the, the girl or the guy, they go to the town that they didn't know they needed to be at, or for some begrudging reason they had to go back. They see someone, and suddenly the life in the city that they had everything in is not for them. You know, they, we, you know the story. Typically, you can read the title, read the description. You know the movie. You know it all. And then there's snow and a dog at Christmas time. They add those elements in. And that's, that's the Hallmark formula. But, but people like Hallmark movies because we like happy endings. We love happy endings. I've got to tell you something about today's story, how Jonah ends. If you like happy endings, you may not like the ending of Jonah. This, we, we will go into it a little bit, but there's not this nice, happy, everything's all good ending with Jonah, and there's a lot left open to interpretation on what happens, but this is not a hallmark story where Jonah's happy and like, you know what, God, you're right, everyone's saved, it doesn't end that way, and we're going to talk about that, but there's some amazing points that we can pick up from this. So as, as we dive into the Jonah chapter 4, just have, have an expectation that God is going to do something today. And it's like I said, the book doesn't end on a positive note, but we do know God uses all things for his glory. And my prayer for us is that as we read what Jonah went through, we can identify maybe things we're going through, and we can have God work in our heart in amazing ways. Sound good? All right, so if you're joining us online, get that separate tab. If you're on your computer open for, with you know, Bible Gateway or your Bible in front of you, let's go to Jonah chapter 4 and let's pray as we welcome God into this place. God, I thank you for today, and, and I thank you that uh, you are amazing. You are so good, and you love us so much that, that you want the world to come to you, God. And I pray that in, in the midst of our, our attitudes, in the midst of our anger, in the midst of all the angst that can come up in our lives, I thank you that you work through all of those things, and you shape us and you mold us. And I pray that as we finish Jonah today, you continue to shape and mold us to be more and more like you and see how we can reach other people for your glory. We thank you, love you, and everybody said, amen. All right, Jonah chapter four. A couple questions for us as we dive in. First one, you don't have to answer this out loud, but just think about it. Does God have feelings, emotions? Does he feel pain? Or is he just a deity up on his heavenly veranda removed from humanity? Does God really feel these things? Or is he just sitting up there on the throne watching everything happen? So that's question number one. And then question number two, what would grieve God's heart? Does God have all these emotions? And then what would grieve God's heart? The heart is a, is a fascinating organ, right? You know, it pump, pumps blood through your system. Um, you know, it, the minute your heart stops, nothing else works. You go down and, and it's over. One of my favorite Christmas stories deals with the heart. Written by famous theologian Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I love this story. And, and the Grinch, you, you, everyone knows the story, right? He hated Christmas. He hates Whoville. There have been numerous movies about the Grinch. Um, and uh, I actually just heard Jim Carrey, I think, signed on to do a Grinch part two. 
I don't know what it's going to be about because, you know, he saved Christmas. But, but I'm, I'm excited because I love the story of the Grinch. But he hates Christmas. He hates the people of, of Whoville. In the opening scene, you see this x-ray come over the Grinch's heart. And we all know something about the Grinch, right? His heart was what? Two sizes too small. And it says this, the, the opening chunk of Christmas, or of the, the book, it says, All the Who's down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight, or maybe his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think the best reason of all may be that his heart was two sizes too small. It's an interesting line there. His heart was two sizes too small. Because, like I said, the heart... We know what it does for our bodies, but it's also, we, we talk about the heart is where your emotion comes from. Are you putting your whole heart into it? The heart is so vital to just understanding emotions and the functions of humanity. Now, the Grinch had a heart two sizes too small. We're going to talk about Jonah's heart today because we're really going to see that come into play with how God worked through Nineveh and ultimately worked through Jonah. Now, when, when we prejudge others, we, ha- we can have this critical and condemning spirit come out. When, when we see people doing things we know we don't agree with, we see people doing things to other people, we can very easily dive into this prejudging attitude where all of a sudden, we're not just looking at their hearts, but what we're really revealing is something about our heart. Our true heart comes in, and we can see that in the midst of other people's disagreements or our angst towards others, we can see that maybe their heart isn't small. Our heart is just as small. When this comes out, we can see that we are unlike the nature and character that God has created us to be. And so we're going to talk a lot about the heart today. We'll be concluding our series with chapter 4, and we'll see that Jonah, unfortunately, still has a very downsized heart. So if you open up Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, we'll start there. It says this. But to Jonah, oh, some recap. God just, Jonah just gave the message. The people of Nineveh turned and repented. Jonah is now up on the hill, and he wants to watch God destroy the city, but we learned at the end of chapter 3, God said he turned from what he said, and he spared Nineveh. So now we have Jonah. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You ever known someone to throw a really bad temper tantrum? This is happening. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed on the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, 
and also many animals. And then the book ends. That, that's really, it's over. We don't know how Jonah responds to that. We don't know if he says, you know what, God, I don't care, take me out. We don't know if he says, you know what, God, you're right, I'm sorry. We, we don't know. All we know is that in this moment, Nineveh is spared. God is happy people are spared. Jonah is so ticked off that God then created this plant and took away this plant that Jonah says, you know what, God, now I'm going to die. Jonah didn't say, kill me when I've been thrown overboard in the sea. He didn't say, kill me when I'm in the belly of a fish. He said, now it's a hot day, kill me. This guy is just all over the place, and he's really, really confused and frustrated with what's going on. This is the ultimate temper tantrum, one for the ages, right? God saved a city, a whole city. We, we talked about how huge Nineveh was, right? This, everyone turned to God. Nineveh was so large, it was most likely the largest revival of its time. It took Jonah three days to get from one end to the other, proclaiming this message of destruction, and the whole city is changed. And Jonah's upset. Put it in today's perspective. How would we feel honestly today if we found out that the largest city over in the Middle East, whether it's Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, I don't know what the biggest city over there is. But when you think of, when you, when you think of a, a country that has, has waged war in, far, in terms of religion, the biggest city you can think of, the entire city suddenly changing in just a couple days. Saying, you know what? We are done. We, the whole place has repented. We are now all in in worshiping God. How would we feel? What would our minds go through? And, and I like to say, yes, awesome. That would be incredible. But how many of us, how many of us would say, wow, that's great. God, now punish them for what they had done for centuries. Punish them for what they've done. They, I'm glad that they know you now. Now give them the consequences because they deserve this. This is what Jonah is saying. He's saying they still deserve their judgment. They need to face your judgment. I think our response is easier said than done because so many times when, when we hear about people giving their life to Christ, we can think that is the most amazing thing. But every now and then you'll hear about someone maybe who's really bad and you go, I don't know. I don't know if they deserve it. I, I recently um, saw online, and um, I haven't watched the video yet, but there's a whole video of this woman's testimony. Um, there's, there's a woman named Kat Von D., famous tattoo artist. She was, uh, I mean, covered head to toe in tons of tattoos. She was very much into the occult and witchcraft practicings. She recently has given her life to Christ. She has gone to church. The video of her baptism is online. She is now in the process of covering tattoos that show some of her past that she's not proud of anymore. And when I read this, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Then I read some comments of people saying, maybe she should now pay for everything she's said and done. It was like, wow, but, but when, when I read that, I was like, all right, we're seeing some people have this real-life Jonah heart towards her. And in our reality, I talked about this couple, um, I think last week or the week before, thoughts when Justin Bieber gave, said he gave his life to Christ, when Kanye West said he gave his life to Christ. We can have a couple different reactions. We can say, wow, this is amazing, or we can say, I don't know if I buy it, God judge them, or we'll see. When in all reality, I think God is really telling us through this story, our heart needs to be, we need to care for the people God cares about. We need to celebrate life when we see people coming to life and moving away from death. That's the point, and Jonah is missing the point. Jonah isn't the only one that I think would feel this way when we have uh, conflicting stories or controversial, controversial conversions, if you will. But when we read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we see something big. We see front and center the heart of man. We see, in general, the heart of man, right? 
So in context, in, in chapter 3, verse 10, Jonah finishes doing this spiritual flyby of Nineveh. He's communicating God's message in just eight words. He comes in, he says, in just 40 days, God will bring judgment. That's his message. He's, he's not walking around saying God loves you. He's not walking around saying God wants to save you. He's just walking from point A to point B saying 40 days, it's over and you're done. Possibly not a lot of passion because as we see in this chapter, he even tells God, I knew you'd do this, but he didn't want it to happen. So he's wanting them to perish. He did not want them saved. But the people heard this message. People who never heard it. And they realized there is a God. They believed God. And this is not just the lowercase g God that they believed in and multiple gods. They believed in this moment, there is God. He is real and he is not happy and he wants them to change. If they didn't heed the warning, their number was up. And so they did the best thing possible. They repented. They turned. They gave their lives over to God. Major revival. But then we see something from Jonah in this. We see Jonah went from this prodigal prophet to a petulant, pouting prophet. He went from someone like, all right, God, I'm going to do what you say. And then he goes right back into the anger. The, you know what? I'm upset, I'm angry, I didn't get my way. And he says that, God, I knew this would happen. I knew it. Kids, your parents ever do something and you said no and then they change their minds and you're like, I knew you'd do that and it made you upset. Jonah's having this moment with God. God, I knew it. I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd come through for it. I hate this, God. I hate it. Even though it was a good thing, he said, I don't like it. Jonah hated Nineveh, wanted them punished so deeply for what they had done. And this shows that his heart was punitive. His heart was vindictive. His heart was prejudiced, and he could not by himself get over it. He was burned up and bummed out by what he sees as the Ninevites are spared. And, and I think Jonah also, because he says that, because he says, I knew this. I knew you'd do this, God. I think we see something else at Jonah now. He's not just upset that Nineveh is saved. I think he's upset that his reputation is on the line. Remember, he didn't go in and say, God loves you. God wants this. He went in and said, in 40 days, you're going to die. And he's known for being a prophet. What doesn't happen to Nineveh? They don't die. So I think now he's like, now my reputation's on the line. Now people are going to say, well, he said this and it didn't happen. So it doesn't really matter. So Jonah has all of his own righteous reasons to be totally upset that this is not happening the way he wants it. He wanted them to burn. They're not going to burn. His reputation and their salvation have just totally messed him up. And an interesting sidebar here, what we see with Jonah. You notice what he does after people start repenting? Because you know, he starts on day one, and it doesn't all of a sudden turn into three days of talking, and then in an instant, everybody at the same time repents. It started working its way through. The, the passage in chapter three says, word got to the king of what was being said, and that people were changing, and then the king changed. So Jonah is seeing this happen, real time. But what does he do as it's happening? He leaves. He removes himself from the situation. He sees people changing, and he gets so angry that it's happening, he walks away from what, he, what was the most amazing thing he could have possibly seen. What did he have an opportunity to do? He was there. He could have started teaching. He could have started encouraging. He could have started celebrating with people. But what did he do because he was so angry? He removed himself. He walked away from the greatest revival ever. He didn't teach, didn't encourage, didn't minister but his anger, he headed to the hills and he disengaged. 
I think sometimes we can do that as well. We can remove ourselves from ministry. We can remove ourselves from encouragement. We can say, things are going so wrong. I don't like what this is happening. And I just need to remove myself from it instead of being in the very place around the very people that you need to be with who can encourage you, who you can encourage in the time, who can do life with each other. And that's one reason I love church so much. I love that we get to come together to be here, to, to encourage one another. We get, to, we get to not just hurt with one another, but we get to celebrate with one another. Let's not remove ourselves from the, from the equation. Let's be a part of the equation. Jonah was so angry, so frustrated with life and where it had taken him to that point that he said, I'm not even going to celebrate with the good things. I'm removing myself from it. He had a harsh, critical spirit. Have you ever been in a place like that before? In a, in a place where you've been so angry with someone, so, so upset with life that, that you just decided right now you would much rather be bitter and angry than celebrate anything. That's when you resentment, bitterness, anger, that is what's now in my heart. And maybe someone's done something to you and you're so mad at them that you say, you know what, more than anything right now, I want to see that person pay. I want to see their life get so messed up that all of a sudden things start going good and you go, I'm out, I can't handle it. They deserve to be hurting. They deserve so much pain and suffering that when I see them happy, it makes me angry and I get out of there. Enter Jonah. Did he have reason to be angry and upset? In a human humanity thought, probably. You know, these people were wicked. They deserved it. We talked in week one about the bodies and skulls and horrible practices they had. So if almost anyone who, who loved God, if that would have just been a, you know what, boom, the city's gone, There'd have been a lot of rejoicing. Yes, those wicked people are gone. But we don't see that. We see saving and we see this man angry. Maybe a group of you or a group of us can have a bias over some, some person and, and maybe you'll see a jerk lose their job or you'll see this loser you don't like have financial trouble or they'll have a relationship breakup and you'll have this subtle sens sensation of delight. You're like, oh yes, they're finally getting theirs. It's finally happening. Students in school, you ever see the, the bully or the, the person who you know is just mean and rude and you just want them to crumble, all of a sudden you see their life start falling apart? I've been there. It starts to feel good a little bit. You're like, yeah, they deserve that. They've had this coming for so long and now they're finally getting it. Or if we believe God is punishing people, we can say, oh, this person, this is doing it, now God is totally coming down on them and yes, they deserve it. If you've been there, then you can identify with Jonah in this moment. You can easily say, oh, I get it. It's, it's, I can now logically easily come to this conclusion. This person in my life, this is a Ninevite. They don't deserve that second chance. They don't deserve it. But fortunately for us, God in his divine nature, he's not always logical when it comes to our understanding of logic and dealing with sin. In dealing with redemption and forgiveness, God handles it in a totally different way. There's something much deeper going on in Jonah's downsized heart here. You see, when, when we judge or, or when we seek justice, we inevitably end up on the same emotional ground as Jonah. When our judgment leads to it, we start getting right to where he is now. And when we, when we start doing that, when we start looking at people and saying, I'm now going to judge you, or I'm gonna, I want God to come down on you, I believe you deserve this, I think that we see something produced in our, our lives. This, this heart and this attitude produces certain things. One of those things is it produces the wrong spirit. Just flat out, flat out produces the wrong spirit. Jonah wants to condemn, but, but not renew these people. And we see this fleshed out in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and 55, a summarized, summarization here. It says, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down on heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? 
But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. You see, Jesus and his followers were, were, following, were traveling through these towns, and they came through the region of Samaria. And if you know some Bible history, Samaria are considered half-breeds. The Jewish and the Gentiles got together. The Jewish people didn't even like the Gentiles. So now when you have the Jewish and the Gentiles get together, they had the Samaritans. And Jewish people and Gentiles all hated the Samaritans. So we have, Jew, we have Jesus and his people come to the people of Samaria now, and there's relational strife between them for centuries. And Jesus goes there to minister, and what happens? At one point, Jesus gets rejected. They reject him and his followers. So the disciples and James and John, they say, you know what, God? Let's nuke them. How dare they shoot, throw us out of here, Jesus? They, have, they don't even know who you are. We tried to tell them and they don't believe you. So let's just call down, he says it like Elijah did. Let's call down fire. Let's take them out. This is going to be wonderful. Bring this marshmallows and graham crackers. We're going, to, we're going to eat over the corpses of our enemies. This is going to be wonderful. And Jesus says, no. Says, you have got the wrong spirit. See, when we're quick to condemn people, when we come out and we judge people for what we think they deserve, that has nothing to do with the spirit of Christ. Nothing to do with the love of Jesus. If our focus is to become more like Jesus, then you know what our goal needs to be? To have even the worst of the worst people in our minds know him. The worst people to love and fall in love with following a Christ-filled life. We have to gauge our heart. We have to guard ourselves. And it can, lead, it can read that long, lead to that wrong spirit. The other thing it shows us is it can lead to a, a wrong solution. A wrong solution. So the solution Jesus' followers said was total destruction, condemn and destroy. But Jesus says in John 3 that he didn't come to judge people. What did he come to do? He came to save. He didn't come to judge and condemn. He came to save their solution was out of character with the message of Jesus. That wasn't what Jesus wanted for anyone. He wants people to know him. So when we allow a wrong attitude to come into our soul, when we, when we sleep with that wrong attitude, when we nurse that attitude, when we feed that attitude, it becomes toxic, not just for us, but for those around us. And what we end up moving towards is the wrong solutions. We end up moving towards things that are counter to what God says, this is what I want to see in people. We move away from what Jesus is saying, say this to people, and we do what we want instead. And usually when it's bitterness and, and anger flowing, guiding that, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus wants us to do. See, God has compassion for people. He wants us to walk through this tough tunnel of forgiveness for everyone. And forgiveness is this deep need of humanity, but it is the highest achievement of God. The deepest need of humanity and the highest achievement of God. His solution is forgiveness. For all these things that we do wrong, that people do wrong, that the world does wrong, his solution is to forgive. Now, parenthetically, we need to say this too. When it comes to people that hurt you, I'm not saying stick around and be a welcome mat or a punching bag for people to just keep on hurting you over and over again. Sometimes people can say that. Well, the Bible says forgive 70 times 7, so I'm just going to sit here and let you beat me up every single day. I'm not saying that. <clears throat> What I am saying is that you need to be able to forgive someone when things happen, but also guard your heart. Be on guard for how God is treat, talking to you on how to handle these situations. I was uh, talking with a friend about some serious pain that they had been inflicted on them for some time. And I remember telling them, it's imperative you forgive this person in this process, but also establish healthy boundaries. Safeguard yourself from your, the pain that this other person is bringing so you're not just willingly opening yourself into getting beat up every single conversation. But what it's really going to start with is your attitude. 
Are you going to have an attitude of forgiveness for people? An attitude to say, God loves them, I've got to love them as well. Or an attitude to condemn. It doesn't mean you hang out every single day just to get more punishment from people who you know are just going to beat you. Forgiveness is defined a few different ways. I want to share a few of these with you. One says this, forgiveness is letting go of the expectation that the other person will make things right. The other party may never respond, and you can't base our response on theirs. Knowing they may never understand it, but letting it go anyways. Catherine Marshall said, forgiveness is releasing another from your own personal judgment. And Neil Anderson, author of the book, The Bondage Breaker, said, it's really ratcheted up, he really ratcheted up the issue by saying, forgiveness is living with the consequences of another person's sin. That one got me thinking. Forgive, living with the consequence of another person's sin because you're letting it go, right? You're moving past it. You're not holding it against them. All this to say, forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness will cost you something. There's a price that you pay when you forgive someone something because you're moving past wanting judgment. You're moving past wanting redemption and you're living towards grace. You see, Jesus understands the cost of forgiveness. Jesus firsthand understands the cost of forgiveness. What did forgiveness cost Jesus? If you look at a cross, you'll see exactly what it cost Jesus. He took the rejection, he took the beating, he took the spitting, he took the humiliation, all for the cost of our forgiveness. And he forgave. And when he was on that cross, what did he say? He said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He took the death penalty, took arson on himself. That was a huge cost, but he willingly took it. And when you look at it in this perspective, we don't deserve a second chance. We don't deserve a tenth chance. We don't deserve a hundred chance, but, but God gives it anyways, right? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical, but, but it's a way that he shows love. It is the compassion that he has. In a sense, all forgiveness is substitutionary because no one really forgives without bearing another person's sin. That's what makes it so hard. But Jesus gave it freely. We see Jonah ultimately He's having a forgiveness issue. The Ninevites repented. They changed, but Jonah will not forgive. He says they are evil. Jonah didn't forgive, but God did. Jonah hadn't worked through his anger or his prejudice. He was incapable of releasing that toxic spirit. He was going to take it with him, and he did take it with him to the hill to watch. But that wasn't a Christ-like spirit or a Christ-like solution. And I believe this greatly grieved God's heart. Jonah 4.4, 4, the Lord says, he, he, he's putting Jonah in check. He says, do you have any right to be angry? Jonah, do you have any right? Is this your place to be ticked off? Imagine God saying that to you when you're going through something or you're upset with somebody. Imagine God looking at you and saying, do you have the right to be angry right now? You look at everything going on in the world, not even involving you, some of it does, but, but do you have the right to be angry? You see, see, God challenges them on this because he wants to give them a different perspective on relationships. There's high expectations of forgiveness and love that we experience from him, and he calls us to extend that to others so others can experience it as well. When we begin to understand the transgressions that he's forgiven, when we begin to understand, even looking at our own lives, the thing that he has moved us through, the things we've been able to overcome by, the, by his grace, by his hand, who we were before we knew him, we have no right to be angry and question who he saves and who he doesn't. We have no right to question his love because he gives it so freely to us. He simply calls on us to share that with others. 
Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate towards forgiving one another just as God forgave you in Christ Jesus. Do you find it difficult to pray for people when they've mistreated you, when they've spoken badly about you? These are the very people God speaks of in Matthew 5.44 when he says, love enemies and pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies and pray for those. And your prayer is not a, you know, the Bible says pray for my enemies, so God, take them out. It's not that prayer. It's the save them prayer. God says, love them, pray for them. He loves them. He wants them. If you know about the life of Christ, you know, Jesus knows all too well, all too well what suffering is, all too well what being mistreated is, all too well what being prejudiced against is, all too well what being rejected is, what being told, no, you will not, you are not, you cannot. He was told those things, and he loved and forgave anyways. We see, uh, we see man, the heart of mankind, but then in verses 5 through 10, we see God's heart for mankind. We see God's heart come. We see that he's sovereign, he's powerful, and we see his heart for all of mankind and all of the cities in the world. So, so look at Nineveh. What does Jonah see when he sees Nineveh? He sees wickedness. Jonah sees violence. His sense of justice is offended. And when just looking at the city, God's sense of justice was offended as well. Initially, when you look at this, Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 says, their wickedness has come up before me. That's God talking. God sees it. He knows it's against him, and he is not okay with it. God doesn't look, God doesn't look, sorry, God doesn't overlook or excuse sin. He's a straight shooter. He calls it. That is sin. What they're doing is wrong, and it needs to change. He sends Jonah. They start in the same place. At At the beginning of this book, God is upset at Nineveh, and Jonah's probably initially, when that, that first part comes up, when before God says, go tell Nineveh what to do, when God says, hey, Jonah, Nineveh's wicked. They come up against me. I can imagine going, Jonah going, yeah, they have. Yeah, let's go. Go tell them I'm going to take them out, but I want them to change. Nope. Not going to do it. He sends Jonah. They started in the same place, but then they went on different paths after Jonah was given his mission. Jonah moved on a fast track of condemnation. He wanted him destroyed, but God patiently travels the track of compassion. Jonah wanted condemnation. God chose compassion. Jonah wanted to do away with, and God said, draw them to myself. He wanted to draw them to himself. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. That's God's agenda, to reach everyone. No one is out of reach. No one is out of his grasp as long as they have breath to respond. This book is all about God, God's heart, God's dealing with people who are far from him, and God wanting everyone to come from him. Look at Jonah. God helped this pouting prophet in a major way. In uh, chapter 4, verse 6, says, Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade from his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. If I was God, wouldn't you just have that moment we talked about, you know, I'm so, I'm so glad I'm not God. Right? There's so many things I'd be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. God changed my mind. I messed up. If I was God in the situation and my prophet finally did what I told him to do and the city was saved and then I see him throwing a temper tantrum, I could probably be like, you know what, Jonah, you're done. You do want to die. All right, you're done. I'm going to kill you. We're done. I'm done dealing with you. I'm so glad I'm not going to have to deal with this because I probably would have wanted to blast Jonah. Just whether literally or figuratively, just put him on blast. 
But God blesses him and brings a shade from a vine to keep his bald head from, breaking, from baking in the searing Assyrian sun. Even though Jonah's throwing a temper tantrum, what does God initially do? Let me give you some shade, cool you down. All right, we're going to talk about this. That's how God deals with Jonah. I think that's how God deals with, with us, with me. Blessings we have, not because we deserve them, but because God's kind. Jonah didn't deserve shade in the moment to relax after his three-day journey. He was ticked and angry and upset. God could have said, just sit and wallow in your anger. I know sometimes when my kids go angry and ticked off, we say, go sit on your bed. Be angry up there. I don't tell them, sit down. Let me get you a blanket. You want to watch something on TV? Let's chill. But no, it's the opposite, right? Get out of here. Go pout on your own. Aurora's nodding right now. She's like, I know. But God is kind, he's compassionate, he's merciful. It's God whispering in your ear, giving you the needed shade that you need in your life. When when we're working, we see evidence of God's grace when we don't deserve it. Jonah Jonah did not deserve God's grace, but he experienced it here. Then we see what happens next. It's very interesting. In verse verse 7, it says, But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then we start thinking, yeah, this is what Jonah deserved, right? Now things have shifted. First, God prepares a vine, and it's the first time in the entire story we see Jonah genuinely happy. And then early the next morning, God sends a worm to ruin the comfort. You see, what, what we see here, though, is this amazing principle. I think we see that God prepares things for us, And then he prepares us by allowing things to happen to us. He's giving Jonah this big picture of life here. And that's why I think in these moments, we need to learn to give thanks. We need to learn to give thanks in everything, knowing that God is in control and he works in ways that are deeper and bigger than anything we can understand. See, he's telling Jonah, yesterday I comforted you. Today I'm going to develop you a God that is building him in totally two different situations, but whether it's in the shade or in the heat, he's going to work on him and he's going to build him. See, God is more, I think God is more concerned about developing our character than he is continuing our comfort. He wants us to grow. He wants us to shape and learn. And if we're just in a place where we're gonna be comfortable our whole lives, we're not gonna shape. We're not gonna grow. We're not gonna get challenged to go do something bigger and better. I know in school, some of my best teachers that I look back on, and in the moment, I don't think I really appreciated them until later on in the year came, but they were the ones that pushed me. The ones that really, really made things hard and difficult, but they saw my potential. They saw what I could do and ultimately made me better. Those were the greatest teachers. God doesn't want us to sit in just the shade of comfort. He wants us to be stretched. He wants us to grow. And sometimes he will allow things to happen to us that'll be uncomfortable, that'll be stretching because we will grow through them and then we'll be prepared for whatever he has next. Can you imagine if, uh, if, if the, the football teams that are gonna play today, if all week they just sat at home eating whatever they wanted, did nothing preparing for the game, what's gonna happen when they show up to the field today on Sunday? They get run over and beat up, not practice, but, but in practice, they get, they get shaped, they get developed, they get pushed, they can get stronger, better, so they're ready for their match. God does the same thing to us. Things happen so he can stretch us, he can grow us. What did God do to Jonah? He sent a worm. Have you ever had what would be called a worm in your life, a difficult boss, a friend, that person who betrayed you, came and just ruined something really, really good for you? You thought this was going to be a blessing, the shade tree, right? But then the worm came along and ruined it. One person came and just ruined everything. Maybe not everything, but a lot of things. 
There was, there was a story that, that um, was shared when, when I was a youth pastor. Another youth pastor said he, he shared this visual with people to emphasize a point he was doing on Sunday. So he, he had four jars, four jars and worms. The first worm he put in, was in a bottle or a jar of alcohol. The second worm was put in a jar of cigarette smoke. The third worm was put in a jar of chocolate syrup. The fourth worm was put into a jar of good, clean soil. At the end of his experiment, he told everyone the results. All right, not, not rocket science, right? The worm that he put in the bottle of alcohol, guess what happened? It's dead. It died. The worm that he put in the, the jar of cigarette smoke, it died. The third worm in the chocolate syrup, probably was really happy for a minute, but then it died. Fourth worm that he put in the, clean, the good, clean, active soil, did not die. Thank you for that. It was alive. It was thriving. It was good. It was healthy. So the youth pastor then asked the congregation, what can you learn from the demonstration? He said, without missing a beat, someone raised their hand and said, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. <laughs> well, not the point. <laughs> not the point. But a critical, the correct lesson is to learn that when you deal with worms, know that it may not be the ideal situation, but God can make it the ideal solution. The worm was in the good soil, and the soil was okay, and worms even make soil better. You can get better because there's a worm doing something in your life. God can use that to strengthen you, to build you up. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 10, it says, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this city? God continues to challenge Jonah and, and concern for this withering vine that Jonah's so upset that this vine is now dead, right? He says, where are your priorities? Where is your real concern? You're more concerned about this plant in your shade than you are that a whole, a whole city just came to know me. Get your priorities in straight. Where is your mercy? Where's your compassion? You, if you can't have compassion over 120,000 people, then you don't really know me. You don't really know me. Jonah's heart refused him, refused to allow him to be the middleman in a compassion transaction between God and Nineveh. I'd like to invite the, the worship team up as we, we bring this to a close here. Now, I know the book does close here. We don't know what happens with Jonah and what happens with Nineveh, but I do know that even as people who've received a second chance for us, we need to make sure we give that to others. We need to be concerned with the things that, that God's concerned with. In the, in the beginning, I asked you a couple questions. Does God have these feelings towards people, or is he just sitting up there watching? What would grieve God's heart? You know what grieved God's heart? A whole city turning away from him. You know what made God's heart rejoice? A city turning towards him. Let's be a people that want to see cities turn towards God. Let's be, people that, let's be a church that says no matter who's out there in the world today, our next door neighbors, the people down the street, no matter who it is, let's be a church that says I want to see all those people come to know him. I want to see revival like this world has never seen. It can start here in Puyallup and it can spread through the world. A revival like none has seen because we're saying God wants everyone. No one's too far and we, we've got to be concerned with the things that concern God and that is people that are far from him. We live in a divided time. Things we deal with today, we deal with cancel culture. We deal with hate culture. We deal with divided culture. As troubling as this book ends, there's a period on it. There's, there's no real resolution that we know with Jonah's heart. There, there's no turnaround where he says, and Jonah went on to love other people. 
put it this, think of it this way. How the Grinch Stole Christmas has a happier ending than Jonah's story. How did the Grinch end? He loved the who's and whoville who he formerly hated because of a heart change. And we said in the beginning, the Grinch's heart was two times too small. How many times did it grow at the end of the book? Three times. Three times larger that day. Let's let our hearts be bigger today than they were yesterday. Let's let our hearts grow. Let's let our hearts love and worship God and let, those, let the world around us see those hearts. We get chances. Let's give the world a chance and let's show them there's a God who says, I don't care how far away you've been. I'm here now and I'm ready to give you your chance. Would you stand with me? Let's evaluate today. Do we need healing in our heart? Know that God can give you a good ending. God can write that on there and say, and your heart grew this many sizes and people were saved because your heart showed the world his heart. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your heart. God, I thank you that you love us so much. I pray that as we leave here today, God, we don't, we don't see people that maybe we just disagree with and make us angry. We see opportunities to share your heart. We see opportunities to share your love. God, we see opportunities to share your, your life with others. I pray that uh, starting today, people who don't know you come to know you. Starting today, people who may be so far from you, they don't know a thing about you, learn. They hear. They experience you in a way they never have before. I pray for any of us, maybe, God, who needs some, some open heart surgery today. Those of us who are saying, you know, my heart's been in a bad place because I deal with bitterness or anger towards others. I pray that that's lifted and we're able to see others the way you see them. God, our hearts break for the ones that break yours. And we see people come to know you and love you. So God, use us, work in us, and be mighty through us. We thank you, we love you. And everybody said, amen.